Let yourself sit comfortably and listen in a way not so much to remember anything that you hear, but rather to sense if it touches in you something that you already know to be true that reminds you of something of value. Otherwise, just let it pass through. No quiz, no exam at the end. It's President's Day, and I've also just returned from some travel in Hawaii, and believe it or not, I'm going to weave those two together and make a Dharma talk out of it. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe I'm just trying to get away from the presidents, but whatever. Um, now, really what I like to talk about tonight um, is a reflection of a phrase that begins many Buddhist texts when they address the person who is listening or reading. They start with the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. So they're a kind of reminder to you of your Buddha nature or your true nature. And being that it's President's Day, I wanted to talk about leadership outer leadership and inner leadership. And when the, when the king of Thailand, where one of the Buddhist countries where I lived for some years as a Buddhist monk, uh, has his coronation ceremony, he's now in his 80s, when there's a coronation for the king, part of the ceremony and ritual is that the king will take bodhisattva vows, which are these vows to um, act with compassion toward all beings and all of life, and to do so for the benefit and the awakening of all. Um, so that, you could say, is wise leadership if it's followed. Um, and he happened to be a very wonderful and benevolent king, so he did follow it. And I start to think about our government and, and its members and what it would be like if they took the bodhisattva vows. It would be different. <laughs> And here we have President's Day to celebrate past leadership, and it's become, sadly to say, somewhat generic. It's President's Day. When I was a kid, we had George Washington's birthday, and you could think about him, you know, and Lincoln's birthday and so forth, and now it's like President's Day sale, right? You can go to Macy's. It's, it's become that, right? Um, but in fact, you know, maybe one of the best things George Washington did was not become king. A lot of people wanted to make him, you know, have him stay after two terms more and more. And he said, no, 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 I want to set a good precedent here. I'll, I'll be the president, I'll do the best that I can do, and then let's turn it over to the next person, which was along with, you know, being the general of the Revolutionary War. It's one thing to have power in that way, um, and it's another not to be corrupted by it. So what is wise leadership, bodhisattva leadership, outwardly or inwardly? I remember standing, as many of you probably have, at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, which is one of the, for me, one of the most moving, inspiring, uh, meditative places in Washington. And there's the statue of Lincoln. And then carved into the stone on each side 
are the Gettysburg Address and his second inaugural and some of the words of Lincoln, where he says things like, uh, he speaks about a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men or all humans are created equal. Um, and in the Gettysburg Address, that those, that these dead shall not have died in vain, um, um, and that a government of and the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Or the phrase in his second inaugural, in this terrible bloody, um, tragic civil war. Imagine the kind of leadership it took. And he says, with malice toward none and charity to all, with firmness in the right, let us strive to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for those who've borne the battles, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And you read those kinds of words, at least I do, and I feel like this is uh, the vision of what leadership can be. And leadership simply means that we, as human beings, look to one another for support. And somebody says, all right, I'll take this role for a time uh, as the vision holder or the leader. And being at the Lincoln Memorial actually reminds me of some of my favorite places in India. I love the Ghats in India, the Kali Ghat at Kali Temple in Calcutta, and the Ghats in Varanasi, the bathing and burning Ghats. And if you go to Delhi, at Raj Ghat is the grassy lawn and memorial for Mahatma Gandhi. And in the center is a place where his funeral pyre was held. There's a kind of eternal flame that's there. And again, carved into the stone around our passages of his words where he says, um, if ever the question should arise for you or doubt about what you should do or how you should act or how you should proceed, picture the face of the poorest person that you've met and ask yourself, will this act be of any benefit to them? And you feel the the weight of those words wedded together with a life that was committed to justice and care and kind of universal goodwill. You say, all right, this is real leadership. When we come to meditate, and bring a sense of mindful awareness to our circumstance, to quiet the mind, open the heart with some compassion and loving kindness. We become the witness to our own life. We become our own inner leader, if you will, and we become what my teacher Ajahn Chah called the one who knows. That is to say, we shift from the preoccupations of what's called the small sense of self, the body of fear. And we can let those come and go as they will, like waves of the ocean, and shift from 
identification with our fears and confusion and listen not so much to the mind but to the heart. And as we do, that sense of what we most value allows us to live with greater integrity, with greater care for ourself as well as others. It allows in some way as we drop off being caught in the fears and the small sense of self and come to rest in the heart, what are called the natural perfections of the heart, the paramitas. And your inner sense of integrity, generosity, dedication, truthfulness, these are the names of the ten perfections, of sacrifice or renunciation, of energy, of goodwill and loving kindness, of equanimity, these grow or flourish naturally as you let yourself sit and become quiet enough to listen inside. It's not easy, especially in the society which has so many pulls to be busy, to be multitasking, to worry about things, to your financial, your familial, all the kind of obligations that you have. The Dalai Lama says that when somebody asks, how can you know if your meditation or your spiritual practice is working? He said, well, he said, I take it in longer periods of time. Every 10 years or so, I do a really careful examination of my life to see if I've gotten any better. <laughs> and of course, he's you know the 14th Dalai Lama, so he's had 14 lifetimes previous as the Dalai Lama to work on it. But nevertheless, it gives a sense that it's not some immediate, okay, now I'll be this way or that way, but rather it is a, a willingness to quiet and sense really what you value from a place of stillness and an inner listening and then develop the capacities to live from that understanding. So you sit, you come to sit in meditation as we just have. And it's not all that easy. You quiet down a little bit and you notice the tension that's in your body. And so you have to hold that with mindfulness and compassion. You notice the emotions that are present. The anxiety or the longing or the love that's not been expressed or the creativity or the fear or the upset at something. And you have to learn somehow to meet those with compassion and understanding. And then you notice all the thoughts and the repeated patterns of thoughts, right? Which are usually tied to a feeling. If you look really closely, those repetitious thoughts are connected with worry or hope or need or desire or fear of being abandoned or wanting to look good or um, wanting to give something that you have a value and have it be offered in some beautiful way to the world. But mostly, when you sit and quiet and pay attention to your mind, it's a little crazy in there. I mean, you know, it's nice to talk about meditation and integrity and values of well-being, loving-kindness. As I often will say from my friend Annie Lamott, the 
humorist. She writes, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. <laughs> Which is why people come to practice together, basically. <laughs> and so, all right, this nice spiritual, you know, Gandhi's great inspiration. Here's Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi's words. They land, but, and, and they feel very inspiring. But then you sit and you look inside. Gandhi himself said it wasn't that easy. He said, he said, I have three enemies, my favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, um, is the uh, British Empire, you know. He said, my second, far more difficult enemy are the Indian people. And if you've ever been to India, which is a completely wonderful place, but there's a fair amount of chaos there as well. He said, they're much more unruly and difficult. He said, but my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence, right? <laughs> so it's not just you. And you sit and there are the storms and emotions and pain and boredom and restless and endless, you know, stories. And the mind goes on and on. And the mind is a great servant. It has gifts and plans and capacities. But it's a poor master when it's running the show. You know that. Um, so you quiet yourself with attention and mindfulness, loving kindness, and you step out of the thrall of the thoughts and the mind and come back to the heart, to the one who knows, to this place of conscience and integrity and deep understanding. And that capacity to be in touch with what you really value and what you could call it your Buddha nature, what is your wisest heart, we'll call inner leadership. So as I was traveling in Hawaii in this last month, um, I had the blessed experience of seeing leadership in an outer way, and I'll describe it to you through encounters with several folks. Um, the first was with Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the Nobel Prize winner um, and was elected Prime Minister of Burma in the early 1990s and then spent 17 years in house arrest. And now is free and Burma is opening up in the last couple of years. And she was given awards by the University of Hawaii and met with a number of different groups. The Rotary International had all these business people meet with her and so forth. And I got to at least meet her briefly in a reception and listen to her some. And um, she was also, my favorite part is that she met with a whole group of several hundred high school students who asked her these really terrific questions. And there is Aung San Suu Kyi, just my age, 67 and a half, <laughs> gracious, born, born two weeks before me. So I really think of her as, you know, sister in that way. Um, gracious, clear-minded, courageous, um, beautiful. She wears the flower in her hair, she says, this is in honor of my father. When I was a little girl, he would put a flower in my hair every morning. And so since her father was assassinated, died, she wears a flower in her hair every day as a kind of carrying his spirit. Um, incredibly uh, thoughtful and wildly dedicated. Um, 
and not sentimental. I was sort of expecting this, oh, sweethearted, you know, the Dalai Lama, great compassion, and she is in many ways tremendously compassionate and kind, but um, not at all sentimental. She has this amazingly clear mind that says, I mean, you can feel her Oxford University education and Burmese aristocracy and a great deal of uh, her, um, a great deal of her thoughtfulness. Um, and she says, she said, well, here's what we need in Burma. We need rule of law first, and then we need to stop the ethnic conflict between, you know, there's tribal and racial conflicts in Burma, and then we need to work on education, health, and why do I start with rule law? She had this whole program for modernizing the country. She said, because if you don't have a system of courts and justice and a healthy set of police or military or whatever to enforce it, then you can't possibly stop the conflicts because nobody feels safe. And she went through all this program. But I'll give you, you want to get a little sense of her, here's two minutes of one of her talks. You can just hear her speak for herself. Saw it. So, honesty was something I learned to value honesty. when I listened to the radio over all these long years. And I think honesty requires courage. Honesty requires courage, and peace requires courage, because honesty and peace are very close together. Louder. To be at peace with yourself, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to know what you are like. You have to know what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And then you learn to live with yourself, to be at peace with yourself. In the same way, if we want peace among ourselves, we have to learn about one another, including ourselves. And that requires courage. You have to have the courage to face what you have to do, as well as what you are. And you have to have the courage to recognize the truth in others, even if you do not agree with them. So, so it just gives you a little taste of her voice and her presence. And that quality of courage was, was so striking. Um, now, uh, President Obama and Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, went to Burma a few months ago um, to celebrate the shift from military dictatorship to the beginning of democracy. And when President Obama was there, he gave an address with Aung San Suu Kyi and others present. And he began by saying he visited the great golden stupa of the Shwedagon, which is like the Eiffel Tower in the middle of Rangoon, this extraordinary pagoda. And he said, I visited this golden temple of the stupa of the Shwedagon and have been moved by the timeless ideal of metta. Nice to have the President of the United States say meta. I really like that. <laughs> the belief that, the, that our time on earth can be defined by tolerance and by love. And he said, we've seen the activists uh, in Burma visit the families of political prisoners and monks dressed in saffron protesting peacefully and learned of ordinary people who organize relief efforts in response to the cyclone. And we came to know we were inspired by the fierce dignity of Aung San Suu Kyi as she proved that no human being can truly be imprisoned if hope burns in your heart. Um, and then he went on, because there is a lot of conflict there, um, 
And he said, um, and I stand before you today as president of the most powerful nation on earth, on earth, but recognizing that once the color of my skin would have denied me the right to vote. And so that should give you some sense that if our country can learn step by step to transcend its differences, then yours can too. That every being within these borders is a part of your nation's story that you need to embrace that is not a source of weakness, but is a source of strength for all of us. So you can really hear him tuning in and maybe carrying the mantle of Lincoln and meeting Aung San Suu Kyi in, in Rangoon. So the high school students asked her, they said, um, how did you handle 17 years of house arrest? What was that like, you know? And she said, it took a lot of discipline. She said, I was a kind of, because when she gave her speech to the world business people and so forth, it was much more, you know, come to Burma and help us start a democracy. But the high school students were saying, no, 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 what, how did you do this, you know? <laughs> she said, I was actually kind of, uh, she, she called herself a namby-pamby and kind of timid as a girl um, after my father was assassinated. My mother raised me, she said. And as a timid girl, my mother said, that will not do. You will not get through, the, through your life being timid like this. And so she was quite a strict disciplinarian, and she made me do very difficult things and do them over and over until I could do them well. She said, and so I learned quite early on to have a sense of discipline. And in all those years of house arrest, I did my morning meditation. I would listen to... BBC radio, I could hear the world news, and then I did my reading and study, and I waited for the day when I would be set free. 17 years. And then, um, and she talked about how long, she said, you have to learn to live in the present. And one of the kind of ironic things and beautiful is that her meditation teacher, Upandita Sayadaw, had come to a number of us had studied with him in Burma and invited him to come to the USA. And he did a series of teachings in Massachusetts at our center in Barrie over the course of several years. And they were turned into a book called In This Very Life. Well, somehow when she was in house arrest, the book in English, In This Very Life, was smuggled into her. And it became her meditation manual. So she said thank you to the people in the U.S. who went to Burma and learned meditation and then sent it back to her. Um, but she said it took a lot of discipline and it also takes as long as it takes. There was this sense of tremendous perseverance about her that you just have to be honest. This is the way things are. Set your direction. Be completely dedicated and be willing to do whatever it takes to carry out your vision. So they said, so what did you do when, the high school students asked, when you first got out from house arrest? You know, like, did you go and get a chocolate ice cream sundae? Did you go to the mall? Did you call your friends? I mean, you know, these are high school students. And she said, well, the first thing that I did was call the members of my political party. So you could really feel her dedication. That was the very first thing she did. But then when you hear her speak about this in a different way, 
you understand. She says, I don't really think of love in an abstract way. When I first think of metta, I feel it within our political movement, especially between my colleagues and myself. We work like a family. We're not just colleagues. We have real concern, affection for each other, which is the basis for our relationship. I think this may have a lot to do with the fact that we have to work under such difficult conditions. It's only metta, or loving kindness, that's strong enough to keep together people who face such repression, who are in danger of being dragged away to prison or tortured at any minute. And the longer we work together, the greater our bond of metta grows. From there, these ties of friendship and affection have spread outward to include the families of colleagues, and from there it spreads further, and with it the feeling of family grows, a family with a love of justice, a love of freedom, a love of peace and equality for all the people of this nation and all the people of the world. So when she said, the first thing I did was to call my political party, it wasn't, okay, let's call the politicians, but it was really to call her brothers and sisters who were dedicated to the same uh, cause of freedom and well-being and awakening. And then she kept stressing to the high school students, she said, you know, it's not easy. You have to be willing to sacrifice. She said, every wise life, every thoughtful life, every choice that you make is a choice of sacrifice. You choose one thing over another. She said, and in the ancient Greek temples, they would make animal sacrifices to the gods. She said, and while that was a barbaric custom, not to be repeated, she said there was an understanding that, that the Greeks had about it that was very important, and that is that the animal to be sacrificed had to go willingly, and that if the animal that was being sacrificed resisted in some way, it was a bad omen. And then she said, one of the things that sustained me for those 17 years was the realization that I had chosen it. That it was an act of sacrifice for something that I considered to be of such value that I was willing to do it. And then she looked at these high school students and said, so you have to think about what is, what is it that is worthwhile for you to sacrifice for in your life. It's not the, not the usual message that one is, you know, getting in our education. And she was quite humble about it in her way, too. You know, she said, if you're supposed to be a good leader, you know, somebody asked, do you feel a burden by all the expectations of someone? And she said, no, I've never pretended I could do it alone. And I don't believe in assuming the burden of other people's expectations. I've always told people that I'm not free from fault, and I've made many mistakes. But I've been very lucky to have good teachers in my life and good friends and good colleagues. And so there's this kind of humility that the Tao Te Ching in leadership says, the master does her job and then stops. She understands that the universe is forever out of control and that trying to dominate events goes against the current of the Tao. Because she believes in herself, she doesn't try to convince others. Because she's content with herself, she doesn't need others' approval because she accepts herself 
the whole world accepts her. And there was a way in which she said, even house arrest, difficult though it was for those many years, had some blessings. One were the little kindnesses that once in a while would come to her. And the second, she said, I had a lot of time to clear my mind and think and meditate and get, you know, really focus on what mattered. And she talked about it in such a way that I went with friends, with Trudy and others who were there. Afterward, we were talking and said, gee, wouldn't it be nice to have a little house arrest? You know, somebody would <laughs> just say, you've got to stop for a month. And, you know, it sort of became our... our. But it's hard to overstate, <clears throat> and Gandhi talks about it, the power of any one person who is that dedicated. And there she was, this one small person who was under house arrest, had been elected her party 90-some percent to become the prime minister, and then the military dictatorship locked her up. And I've told this story uh, when I was in Burma a few years ago before she was released. You couldn't say a word about her. If you even mentioned her name in talking to Burmese people, the Secret Service people were around, um, and they would listen and take notes, overhear things, and then whoever you talked to could well be hauled off to prison and tortured. So I remember one day riding in the taxi, and it, yeah, it was 2000, whatever, um, four years ago maybe, and um, going through the traffic in Rangoon, and the driver flipped down his visor, and on the back of his visor there was an Obama bumper sticker. You know, Obama. This was before Obama went to Burma. But people around the world like Obama. Obama. So I thought, all right, maybe this is safe. I said to him, I want to ask about Aung San Suu Kyi. And his eyes got really frightened. Like, And I said, listen, nobody else is here. I really respect her. I love her. I've worked for freedom in Burma. So I just want to tell you that. But I have a question to ask. I said, nobody ever talks about her. She's in this dilapidated house by the lake there that you can see from a distance. And I wonder whether the people of Burma, whether they have forgotten her. And at the next traffic light, he stopped and he turned around. He put his hand to his lips and he said, never here. And then he put his hand on his heart and he said, always here, always here. We can't say her name but we carry her spirit. And so here's this one person who could have gotten out of Burma anytime she wanted to see her husband when he died of cancer, her children graduating from college wouldn't go. And she said, nope. She said, I will remain here, because if she left, they wouldn't let her back. And I will not hate you. I will not go away. And I will not hate you. And I will stay here. And her dedication and her spirit somehow um, carried, buoyed up the spirit of 50 million people. And when somebody said, well, what do you hope for the future? You know, do you hope you become president? Do you hope? She said, what I hope is that we get real freedom for the people of my country and that right now we need help from the world, but actually we have a lot of gifts to give the world and I hope we get freedom and we can grow so that the beautiful things that are part of our culture can become gifts back to you and to the rest of the world. And when I was with her, 
it really made me question, well, what am I dedicated to? Or what do I want to use the next years of my life to do? What is it that I really value? Feeling the fierceness and the beauty of her dedication. So you come and we sit together and quiet the mind, hear all its stories, healthy ones, unhealthy ones, and so forth, and then listen to the heart. Say, all right, what, what is my own dedication? What is it that really matters in your life? So I saw Aung San Suu Kyi. Another person that I visited in Hawaii, who's kind of like visiting folks, was Ramdas, who I've been able to see every year or two for a while. Ramdas is almost 82 and author of Be Here Now, for those of you who don't know him, and kind of a great spiritual, remarkable spiritual figure in the 60s and 70s. And for Ramdas, the word for the one who knows is loving awareness. And I talked about seeing him a year or two ago when he was leading a teaching for a festival in Maui, kind of this hippie festival. And people were asking him all these questions, all these young people. And he said, he said, I'm just loving awareness and that's who you are. And they would say, what should I do? Or what about this or that problem? And he, he would take a breath and he does, because of his stroke and his aphasia, he has a lot of pauses in his language which he uses now very skillfully. He would let people get quiet and he'd say, first just be the loving awareness, be the witness of it all. You are loving awareness and then you will know how to respond in that circumstance as a parent or in your family or in business or whatever you're trying to do. Let yourself get quiet and become the loving awareness. So we spent a lot of time, we were hanging out and told stories from the early years, from 30 and 40 years ago, which was, you know, just kind of fun to do. He talked about how he had been um, tripping on acid and, and Krishna, the Indian uh, form of uh, God, um, had come in the, it, sometimes Krishna is depicted as the blue and this dancing figure with all the gopis and so forth. And he said, so there I was tripping away, you know, dancing with Krishna. And then I needed to go out and get, uh, I had to do this errand. He was in Millbrook or somewhere. He said, so I got in the car and um, was on my way to the store, you know, and all of a sudden there were these blue lights behind me. <laughs> And I pulled over, and this guy comes, this very, this officer, you know, comes, and he says, I'm sorry, was I driving too fast? He says, no, you were driving too slowly on this highway. <laughs> and he said, and he was very upset, and he said, and I'm looking at him like, oh, blue lights, this is Krishna, come to visit me. And he's writing this thing, and I said, Krishna's going to give me a little gift of a ticket, it's fine, if it comes from the gods, it's all right. So we were telling stories, right? And he told the story that he always tells about, because it's so close to his heart, about meeting his guru in India and how there he was up in the mountains and very skeptical about Indian gurus and the sky looks him over. And, 
and then starts to talk to him about dreams he had. Ramdas, you were sitting out last week under the stars and thinking about your mother having died and she died of kidney failure or whatever, all these things. And Ramdas said, how could he know what I was thinking? You know. And then he spent more time with this guru and he found out that the guru knew everything about him. But the thing that was most shocking wasn't that the guru could read his mind and know his history. The thing that was really shocking was that he loved him. He said he knew everything about me and he still loved me. He said, and I spent, he said there's something called the, the glance of mercy in India. And if you want to get an image of it, and you go into our little gratitude hut that has pictures of our teachers, there's a picture of Ramana Maharshi in there that's this very famous picture of him looking with so much love that just to be seen in that way can change your life. And I remember my teacher Deepama, who's this amazing woman in Calcutta, giving me a hug and blessing me and so forth when I was going through a hard time as a young teacher and sending me on my way. And I have to say, I didn't stop smiling for three days and nights. I was just in ecstatic, you know. She was quite amazing. Anyway, um, so Ramdas was going to come back from India after his first year being with his guru. And um, guru said, go, you know, tell people, teach in some way. And he said, well, I don't feel ready to do that. I've got so many imperfections, so many things that are, you know, still unworked out in me. I couldn't do that, possibly. And his guru got up from the seat where he was sitting and walked very slowly around Ramdas, peered at him up and down from every side, looked really carefully, took a few minutes to do it and sat down, looked him in the eye and said, I see no imperfections. Imagine being seen that way. So what's happened for Ramdas, and it's really beautiful, is that he had this brilliant and witty and and quite extraordinary articulate mind as a teacher for many years, but with the stroke that he had 16 years ago, he lost a lot of his language. And instead of using his mind very much anymore, it's still there, it's still good, we have great conversations, he's just all love. Um, and he says, yeah, my practice now is to love everything. And I said, everything? He said, everything. He said, I love that wall, you know. I love the bowl on the table. I love people who come and I love the trees out in the garden. He was so funny about it. You look at his altar and there's all these pictures of Indian saints of, uh, 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 you know, Ananda Mayama and his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and all these, all these other, and St. Francis or whatever. And also on his altar, there's a picture of Barack Obama and George W. Bush and John Boehner and all these politicians. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah I love them all. Um, so we were there with Mickey Lemley, who's a filmmaker who made the film Fierce Grace about Ramdas. And Ramdas had been talking about loving everything and everybody, that that's just, he said, that's all there is. That's all that matters. You know, and he did the I love the wall on the floor. Mickey said, come on, you can't tell me you love the wall or this dirty carpet as much as you love your guru or, you know, your dear friends. Ramdas says, it's all love. So Mickey went home, got a piece of dirty carpet 
put it in a frame like the picture of a guru and sent it to Ramdas and said, all right, if you, see, you say you love it all, here it is, put this on your altar. So there's a picture of his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, on the altar, and right next to it is this dirty carpet. <laughs> and when Ramdas used to come and, and practice at our center in Massachusetts, and he would do his walking meditation in, uh, in our center, which was a, had been a Catholic monastery, um, there are Mostly it's very, very simple, and as Ramdas said, you know, there's just not enough devotion in this Buddhist practice. It's just not sweet enough for me. But in the upper walking room, there's two windows, one of like St. Francis, and on the opposite side, a little window of Jesus with one of his disciples' heads on his shoulder. And Ramdas would always do his walking between those two windows. He'd say, that's the only sweet place in the building for me to do my meditation practice. So, so there we were hanging out, and he's just in love with everything, we went whale watching, which was great, watching these humpback whales and their calves, their babies. We also watched a football game together, you know. Um, and then we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about death, because he's getting older, as others of us might be. Um, and he talked about how many times he had died uh, you know, I was a professor, or I was the person who started Seva Foundation, or I was this guru with the robes and, you know, my mala and beard and so forth. He said, I lived so many lives. You know, I was a pilot, or I was a cello player. I can't even use that arm anymore. I died each time, and it was reborn in a different life. So he said, this is just what's natural. I said, yeah, and... I said, well, for me, I thought, and I've said this before here, a few years ago, when I had some neurological problems and passed out in front of a big group like this and came to after a long time, a minute, minute and a half, unconscious, and all these doctors peering down, I started to get a lot of tremors and numbness and all kinds of neurological things. So I went and had every test in the book. And then I got misdiagnosed. Actually, I'm pretty much fine now. Most of it's gone. They never figured out what it was. But the diagnosis I got initially was something kind of like ALS. Um, and it was happening quickly. This doctor thought, yes, your body is going to be gradually deteriorating over the next months. But also, it comes with dementia. And I thought I was cool about death, you know. I'd done my death meditations in the monastery and practiced sitting in front of the charnel grounds and envisioning my own death. Dementia was not one of the, you know, <laughs> scenarios that I pictured. And so I actually got much more afraid than I thought I would. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose every capacity. And I told this to Ramdas. He said, oh yeah, yeah. I flunked the course a few times too. He said, you know. <laughs> I had this, and then I thought I'd be fine with it, and then, like, where is my, you know, where is my guru? He's out to lunch, you know. I hear I'm having a stroke I, when I, just when I need him, and he's not here, you know, or whatever. And if you read Nelson Mandela's autobiography, he walked out of prison 27 years with such forgiveness and magnanimity and compassion and gratefulness and graciousness. But it wasn't that way all the time in prison. There were times when he was angry and hurt and, you know, caught up in all kinds of ways. And he, too, had to work through things. It's not like, okay, everything's going to be fine. Um, 
in fact. It is all a practice that we do. And so we talked about it. We talked about, well, what do you think happens when you die? Because he says he feels in many ways quite ready. And he said, well, it's still such a great mystery. Um, But I had just been with one of the teachers here, a woman named Marlene Jones, who died last month. She's come and taught at Monday night. She was a professor at Dominican and at uh, USF and a San Rafael school board member and a community activist. She did all kinds of things. But anyway, she had heart failure and she was put in the hospital. Um, They revived her, but she was... um, uh, she, her heart failure had lasted quite a while, so by every measure she was in a deep coma and there was no sign of brain activity for a good part of a week. I went to visit her several times. Finally, the doctors and her family decided to take her off all the machines because there was, seemed to be, and they did, and there seemed to be no responsiveness at all. So it was the last day, and... Um, I sat with her, held her hand, we did some chanting, I did some chanting, some family members there, talked to her about letting go, feel how surrounded she was by love, let go into the luminosity that was her own true nature, or nobly born, these teachings of uh, leaving this body when it no longer serves, and so forth. And so I did that for a while, And then I just stopped and I said, you know, I'm really going to miss you. This was too soon. You know, your dear friend, we were just planning all these things you might do as a teacher and so forth. And I'm going to miss you. And the least you could do is give us a sign. And immediately a tear rolled down each of her cheeks. Deep coma, no brain activity. But she was there listening. She was listening. So Ramdas and I are talking about, so what happens in this mystery when you die? It will happen to you, by the way, if you haven't noticed. Um, float out of your body, light. Okay, I've had a lot of out-of-the-body experiences of meditation and so forth. And then he said, you probably just first see what you're, what you're envisioning, what you imagine seeing. And I know that's true in a certain extent because with Stephen Levine, good friend, he'd been with a lot of the, um, over the years, just doing hospice work. Uh, people worked a lot with children who were dying. And he said we had, he said, I remember this one little boy who was seven or eight years old, and he died and they brought him back a couple times um, near death anyway. It seemed like his heart stopped and they brought him back. And I asked him what happened and he said, well, I floated out of my body, there was all this light, all that's beautiful, and, and, then, and then I was met. Well, who met you? You know, sometimes you hear grandparents or whatever. He said, Raphael. I thought, Angel Raphael, when Stephen's telling me this story. But it turned out it was in the 80s, it was um, the period when the teenage mutant ninja turtles were the big toys. <laughs> And Raphael was the wisdom figure of that time. So who met him was the, this wisdom mutant turtle that was giving him teachings. 
I don't know, it's pretty mysterious, isn't it? Anyway, but Ram Dass said, all right, somehow you float out of your body, we know this much, there's light, there's luminosity, and then after whatever images come, then there's the, the role, the, you get to the level of the soul. He said, and I expect to be there with my guru and he'll give me my next assignment. And I said, well, what if you don't have a guru? <laughs> you know, it's fine, you've got a guru, somebody's going to meet you, what if you don't? And he said, oh, everybody has a guru. The guru is in you, it's not somebody out there. The guru is this one who knows. The guru is the loving awareness, the witness to your incarnation. So when you sit in meditation, in some way you're consulting that guru, you're letting yourself step out of your thoughts and worries and small self and rest in the place of the heart that's the inner guru. And in that listening, you can feel intention, dedication, forgiveness, love, all the things that you most value are there in that inner listening. And they're there now, just as they will be later. So I could really feel Ramdas's. it's so beautiful to be with him because there's so much love. And you just look and laugh and smile. And everybody who came in, he loved. What a, what a great way to live. You know, why not do that? The third person, almost done, that I met, was a man named Nainoa Thompson, um, after being with Ram Dass. And uh, was supposed to go out, actually, on the voyaging canoe, the Hokulea, but then there was a big storm. And each one of these, if Aung San Suu Kyi represents dedication and integrity, Ram Dass represents love and... Uh, you know, a great capacity for wisdom. And I know there was a kind of equanimity, generosity about him. And I know is become quite famous in the Pacific as the navigator for the great Polynesian voyaging canoe that was built, the Hokulea, in the 70s. Um, when it was understood that long before the Europeans came to the Pacific, the South Pacific civilizations had colonized or had, had populated all these islands um, through these double-held voyaging sailing canoes. But that art had been lost. And if you read in the log of Captain Cook, who was one of the finest navigators of the Royal British Navy, when he went, at that time, they didn't have a way of measuring uh, longitude. Um, there was the, everybody, they could find latitude. They sort of had to hug, the ships had to hug the coasts, mostly because they didn't know quite where they were in the ocean. They found a navigator in the Marquesas, in the South Pacific, who cleared the sand and put 120 stones in the sand that were, was every island in the South Pacific and said to Captain Cook, here's a map of you know, 4,000 square miles of the ocean and what you'll find. And they took the navigator on board and no matter if it was cloudy storms, couldn't see anything, they would ask him, where are we, where are the islands were? And he always knew exactly where he was. So there's this art of knowing through the stars, through the deep waves, uh, through um, watching what's floating on the water through the birds, through all the natural world of knowing where you are, um, 
that was seemingly lost, but actually kept alive by a handful of navigators in the South Seas. And when the Voyaging Society started, they went to find one of these navigators, built this great canoe in Hawaii, and he came to lead them, lead the first voyage from Hawaii and islands to Tahiti. And when they got to Tahiti, doing this without, with this navigator in the back, without any modern instruments, over thousands of miles of the Pacific, half the island's population came out to cheer. It's like, we're back again. The Polynesians are back. Mau was his name, Mau Pialug. Um, and so after he began to teach them, and he taught them, you know, his, his teacher had taken him when he was a young boy, his grandfather, um, when he was age one and two into the tide pools and put his body in the ocean from when he was a tiny little boy to feel the waves. And he could feel the waves with his body, five levels of them bouncing off other islands. That's how deeply he could sense the ocean. Um, so Nainoa learned from him 400 stars and the whole way the celestial navigation happened when you could see it. And so they decided to do their own voyaging after Mao had taught them some. And they set out to go between the islands and a big storm came up and their boat was capsized in the, in the channel outside of Molokai. And one of the most famous young Hawaiian men, a guy named Eddie Akau, who had been um, the heroic lifeguard on the North Shore, um, saved hundreds and hundreds of lives, one of the greatest surfers in the world who was on that boat, Polynesian Voyaging Society, it turned over in the storm, everyone was just holding on to it, and he said, I'll go get help, because no help came for a long time. And he took his surfboard and was going to paddle 20 miles through these waves in the storm, and was never seen again. And um, if you drive around Hawaii, there are these bumper stickers that say, Eddie would go. Because in the worst storms, in the North Shore, in the biggest waves, when people were drowning, he would take a surfboard and just head out and rescue people. It was really amazing. Um, so after that, it kind of broke Nainoa's heart in some way. He didn't know if he could continue after the death. He was the navigator uh, of this person, and he felt a lot of failure and shame about it. And then he said somehow that he realized that he had to stand up for his people, for the children not yet born, and that he'd spent his years preparing for these voyages, and he decided to do it. He could either be broken and live with that shame. And he said, I just hope that all our children will keep on pursuing knowledge, because none of us know where we're going, but at some point in our lives, that knowledge will allow us to jump into the unknown, take on new challenges, and that's what I consider before every one of these great voyages, the challenge, learning to take on something new. And I realized I had to do it for all the children who would come after me in these islands. So after that, Mao came back and said, okay, you guys don't know what you're doing. I wasn't going to teach you, but now that Eddie died, uh, I realized that I have to show you more. And he said his teacher was really could do magic. You know, he could call the birds and they would come to the voyaging canoe and then show him the way back to the island. He could, if he needed to, change the weather. I was taught how to change the weather too, and I don't know if it really works or not, but on some special occasions and retreats, there's a little way of connecting with the weather, Davis, that 
I try it anyway. And sometimes it seems to work. Um, but he could do all these amazing things. Um, and he was trained in this magic from when he was really little. And I know I said I learned a little bit of it. But he said, I was too old to start. I started in my 20s, and you have to start when you're, you have to learn it in your bones when you're a year old. Um, but what we did, he said, was to begin to voyage again after he trained us really thoroughly. And they've now visited all the great islands of the Pacific and Japan and around, and they're about to start a around the world voyage without any instruments in the Hokulea. But the most the next great difficulty after, after the boat capsized and Eddie died, he said, we went on the longest voyage, which was to Easter Island, which is the furthest part of the Pacific after Hawaii. Um, uh, Rapa Nui, it's called. And he said, as a, as a navigator, we had this long conversation about it as a meditative practice. You sit in the back of the boat, and you don't sleep for the months that you're on the sea. You go into this half-sleep state, but you always have to know when you left, where your island is, and where you are. And even if it's dark, or you have days of storm by the equator, you're in the doldrums, there's this gray cloud at night, you know, it's raining, you can't see where you are, you can't see where the sun or the moon or the stars are. You have to keep the sense and know where you are in your body. He said, so there we were, we'd been out on the ocean for weeks headed toward the most distant islands, and I fell asleep. And I didn't, I was ashamed, I didn't want to tell anybody. I woke up, and I didn't remember where we were. I didn't, I'd lost that sense of where we were. And it was dark, and it was stormy, and I sat with it in the back of the boat very quietly for a day or two. And we just kept sailing, and I realized I don't know what to do next. And then I could hear my teacher, Mao, who said, when you don't know what to do next, go inside and feel the boat, the canoe, uh, at the center of the world. He said, and I did that, and I realized that um, because every place is the center of the world, you are the center of the world. In all these great galaxies, every place is the center. He said, and I realized I could feel the boat not just sailing the Pacific, but sailing the islands of our people and sailing history and time and the galaxies. And there I was in the center. And I got very still. And then I remembered my teacher saying, and then when you're still and really silent, you have to pull the island that you seek up out of the sea. So I sat very quietly, and I pictured somehow, imagined the island. And all of a sudden, he said, there was a little break in the clouds, and the moon came, and it struck me on the shoulder. And then I looked up, and I could see the top of the island that we were looking for in the distance, the top of that volcano. And he said, unlike my teacher Mao, I can't make magic happen but I know that it's there. And that's really what I want to teach. And he's now instructing a whole generation of new navigators how to be that quiet. And he said how to trust in that deep connection um, when everything else seems lost. I want them to carry this ancient tradition 
as we go around the world. And he's training, one of the first things he's doing is training a generation of women navigators, which has never happened before. We talked about what it's like in Buddhist tradition, carrying this ancient tradition, and then making it new in the modern world. Um, so he said, yeah, I think, I think her name was Kayulani. I think Kayulani could pull Tahiti out of the ocean. And from him, just sitting with him, both there was this humility and tremendous sense of peacefulness about him that you just have to be still enough to listen and the guidance will come. Um, there was this sense, again, of a different kind of leadership. You know, his is cultural leadership and leadership in the natural world, but more than anything, the leadership that listens deeply and trusts. Do you have the patience to wait, it asks in the Tao, till the mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you remember where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you. And even when death comes, you are ready. So we sit. We sit in this mystery of incarnation, of your own human life. And we listen for our own courage and dedication, like Aung San Suu Kyi, our own love, like Ramdas, to be loving awareness not idealistic, but to really love our own generous and trusting spirit, to rest in the one who knows, in loving awareness. And this is real leadership. It's the leadership in your life. And the leadership of that listening brings the blessings then that you carry to everyone you touch. So let's just sit for a minute. And sense as you sit quietly what qualities of inner leadership are being pulled out of you or being asked of you. Dedication, compassion, courage, loving awareness, generosity. They're all in you. And they await your listening and your willing embodiment.
Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for your good hearts. Um, one tiny last announcement in the break. Uh, Marini came up to me, a woman here, and said that